Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we're happy to talk to Kai Kresik. Kai is a data specialist for Global Forest Watch. Global Forest Watch is an online platform established by the World Resources Institute that provides data and tools for monitoring forests. Kai researches and analyzes remote sensing and spatial data, as well as supports Global Forest Watch's strategy and partnerships for satellite-based forest monitoring. She also manages the Global Forest Watch Open Data Portal, which enables users to download forest-related data free of charge. Kai has a particular interest in researching and compiling contextual data that enhances our understanding of the drivers of deforestation. Additionally, she enjoys nurturing her passion for science and data communication by developing educational materials and content for users, such as blogs and webinars about Global Forest Watch data and research. Hi, Kai. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Please tell us about yourself and your background. My name is Kai Kresik, and I currently work with Global Forest Watch, which is an online forest monitoring platform. But before having my job here as a data specialist, I graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in both geography and biology. And it's kind of crazy that I ended up doing this because I had initially been planning on being a classical musician. So between the ages of 12 and about 18, um, I had been attending countless hours of music lessons. I eventually went to a secondary school that focused primarily on music and performing arts, and I was all ready to go to um, audition for conservatories. But I think um, I had kind of a crisis in interest, I think, when I was 18 and deciding what I wanted to do with my life, as I'm sure a lot of 18-year-olds have. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was sitting down and wondering, out of everything I've done in my life, what has stuck out the most to me? And I came up with a couple of memories. Um, in fact, my first memory that I can even remember, I think I was three, we had been hiking in the forest, we being my parents and I, and I was in a little backpack that my dad was carrying up the mountain. And I just remember being happy and being um, outside and being curious, looking at all of the trees and all of the nature that was around me and just feeling very safe and very warm. Um, another memory that I think came up when I was planning on what I was going to do in my future um, was, I think, my favorite memory. And I know it might be hard to pick like your favorite memory of all time, but in Harry Potter, they have those, um, those spirits that are conjured by like your happiest memory. I forget what they're called, <laughs> but um, I think if I was to conjure my spirit, uh, my magical spirit, because I needed to think of my favorite memory, it would be the memory of me and my family, my mom, my dad, and my sister going on a very long hike in Glacier, Montana, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And while we were up there, we were walking around identifying plants and searching for the elusive elephant head flower, which is a very tiny flower, surprisingly, but it's called the elephant flower because each of its little flower petals looks like an elephant head. Like you can see the trunk, you can see the ears, but they're very difficult to find. So we were trawling the riverbed, looking in tall grasses, and when we finally found it, I I shouted, I was like, this is the elephant head and we found it. And it was one of the probably 
best moments of my life up until then because of all that uh, searching and like fruitless activity, never finding it. And then finally it was there. So I guess um, thinking back on it, all of my really positive memories in life are associated with being outside in nature. Um, and so that really made me interested in choosing a profession that got me outside and got me engaged with the global community, especially as it pertains to conservation and the environment. And I thought that maybe my plan before wouldn't allow me to learn the scale that I wanted to. So when I was in college, as I said, I studied biology and geography, and my goal was to be as interdisciplinary as possible because I didn't really want to peg myself as a certain person. I wanted to have all of the opportunities and I didn't want to burn any bridges early on. So it allowed me to take a wide variety of classes. I took international affairs. I took a lot of hard science classes. I was also involved in a lot of classes that were considered labs, but really just extended hiking trips with our group, <laughs> looking at nature and um, figuring out why rivers were doing one thing and why erosion was occurring here in the way that it was. It was very fascinating. And I also got a lot of technical experience working with maps and working within geographic information systems. And I think a little bit of my artistic interest from when I was younger blended with this kind of scientific and socio, sociologic interest because I really, really enjoyed making maps. And maps are not only a combination of kind of facts about places and very discreet information about where things are, um, but also a combination of how these things impact society or how, of course, society impacts these environments. And I thought it was really beautiful that you could make this data tell such an interesting story and how these, you know, thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of data points um, can really come together and tell you, for example, where the most deforestation is happening or um, where people are suffering from Ebola, per se, and really help people who are both policymakers and people who are living in those areas uh, figure out what's going on in the ground in real time. And I think that's one of the greatest things about maps these days. Um, they're available online, they're available from your smartphone, and they update in near real time or real time when you get the information. And I think it's become a really great asset and it's enabled scientists and policymakers to really get information out to the world um, as soon as they need it. I love and that, first of all, you come from such an like, authentic, genuine interest that sort of uh, happened to be your career later on too. Like, oh, like my favorite memories are connected to nature and I love forests and therefore I'm going to be out there protecting them. Like that sounds like a very much like a Wonder Woman story. So I really, really, but, um, and I do also agree that, you know, quality mapping and data visualization, it, it is art, right? Like, and it can definitely communicate data into the mass and also make it more accessible and convincing to policymakers or other uh, institutions in terms of how they're going to act on it just because it conveys the message so powerfully. So I definitely agree on that. Um, so how about you share some of the, um, uh, I guess, like experiences you had already um, working on um, sort of some of the challenges you see with the forest. And you can, you know, walk us through some like common issues that we may or may not 
I've heard about, but also some of like more like specifics that you want to go into, especially in the context of mapping. So I liked what you said about mapping being really important for policymaking, and I definitely agree. Um, when I first saw the Global Forest Watch map, when I first started working here, I was really struck by the way that I was able to portray the deforestation that was going on around the world. I think maps can not only be informative, but I really think they can be inspiring. So when yeah. I saw the extent of this deforestation, I was really taken aback. And I know that um, this map has really taken aback our users and really made them into activists and advocates for forests. Um, so one of my jobs as the data specialist is to hunt down different contextual data sets. And these data sets can be things like protected areas within a specific country, um, commodity related data, such as soy and palm trade, soy and palm agricultural locations. Um, also, we look for information on intact forests, which is really important to know about because these forests are areas that humans have not been able to have influence over. So they're basically pristine areas of wilderness, and it's really good to know where these are because when deforestation happens within these areas, we're pretty sure that it's deforestation and not due to, for example, agriculture or right. plantations or rotating, um, rotating causes of loss. And so by gathering these data sets, I feel like I've been able to do a lot of really amazing things and meet some really amazing people. So one of my favorite parts of my job is that I get to um, talk and collect data from different data sources and different data producers. And I think one of the conversations that I had um, really stuck with me and um, this gentleman from a company that is involved in harvesting wood fiber and pulp for paper. And he specifically is involved in a project to reduce fire-related deforestation in Southeast Asia. So what he was telling me was that he was collecting information on where these agricultural regions for extracting trees for applications in wood fiber and pulp. Um, they were causing a lot of fires and a lot of damage in the area and he's involved in also educating young people about the dangers of um, fires related to this and also more sustainable ways to go about this process. And I thought it was really amazing um, that not only are NGOs and um, people living on the ground in conservation, but it really seems like companies and corporations are taking the step to become more sustainable. And I think that um, the fact that they even had a sustainability manager and who was involved in so many um, parts of their, at least public outreach, was very encouraging to me. And we were able to get his data. And by having this data, we're able to keep track of fires that are happening within legal concessions and then fires that are happening outside. So then we can better see who might be responsible for fires that aren't in areas where it's legal. And so that maybe we can um, guide civil society organizations to making this um, come to light in the country and um, prosecuting those responsible. That's what I was gonna get into. I think that's really interesting. So let's say you find all this data of like something illegal, right? Like mm -hmm. something illegal happening in terms of deforestation. The next steps is then you reach out to the like local organizations or you reach out to, I don't know, like higher level, like the local like municipality or like a local government, like how does that process work? 
Yeah, um, so we are a data provider. So we say that um, we don't take direct action in the field, but we do make it possible for people who are working in the field to have access to our data for free mm -hmm. and in a variety of different formats and in a very digestible way so that um, when they track forests in forest loss, they can get the most up-to-date information and respond as soon as forest loss happens. So we work with civil society organizations in several different countries, in Brazil, for example, Indonesia, Central Africa, and they use not only our website to track deforestation, but also an app that we've created. So we have this app called Forest Watcher, and it enables people who have cell phones or smartphones to download GLAD alerts and target areas in their area of interest where deforestation is happening and address those directly. So it really saves resources and time where people were before having to patrol these areas on foot and check areas that might not even be affected by deforestation. Um, now they're able to target areas specifically based on the alerts that are coming up on their phone. Yeah. And these alerts are updated daily and we're able to get them out almost instantaneously on the app. So it's a really incredible way for people to access our data in the field and it really leads to action um, as soon as people get this information. And so when people receive this information, they're able to take pictures of the damage that's occurring. They're able to log the exact coordinates and depending on whether they work with um, the government or if they work with a nonprofit, they're able to share and make known the deforestation that's happening illegally. So I can give one example of how this is happening. Yes, please. So we have partners in Brazil with the Amapá Police Department, and they reached out to us to let us know that they are using our Forest Watcher app, as I described earlier. And the police before, as I said, were trying to uh, monitor a huge area, I think almost 100,000 hectares or more. Um, and it was taking them a lot of time and energy and, of course, public funds to do that. And by using Forest Watcher, it's made their patrols a lot more efficient. And it's been able to give them kind of direct access to documentation in terms of knowing exactly where the forest loss is happening and combined with our contextual layers they can even maybe guess who is responsible based on who's registered in mining concessions perhaps or logging concessions or agricultural concessions so um, our data was really making an impact there and they were able to persecute numerous actors who were involved in environmental crime and now they're able to share their experience with other police departments in Brazil. And I think that it's really amazing that their personal experience um, really inspired them to share this application with others and that it's spreading around the region where um, it's really needed the most. I love the um, collaboration of data in that example. Um, do you find or are there any examples where uh, the data that you provide sort of becomes the preventive measure as you may find like some illegal action may be happening in a certain area, you see some fires. So do you come up with some projections on like, you need to watch especially these areas? Because we've seen like, we've seen in Australia too, like when fires start, it's very, almost very too late, right? So it, I think it's very interesting to understand sort of like how data can help to sort of like forecast and stop some of the uh, future. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think with a wealth of data comes, as you said, the ability to predict where tree cover loss might be happening. Um, so we have a couple of different examples, and I don't want to get too technical because I think I could really talk all day about these things. But um, one example that is particularly interesting is the emerging hotspots data set that we have on our map. So these areas are um, significant clusters of primary forest loss on country level basis. And so the analysis allows us to look at areas where over time and over space there is a significant uptick in the amount of deforestation that's happening. So we have so many points of data um, that shows where deforestation is happening, but this, which is a analysis that uses machine learning and image interpretation, um, allows us to sift through that data and pick up really interesting trends that are happening over time and allows us to focus on regions that are sticking out because of the large amount of forest loss that's happening over time and then of course around that area too. So they take in both the spatial and the temporal sides of the tree cover loss and it results in a kind of hotspot map. So the map looks like a lot of red and orange and yellow blobs around different countries but the red areas are the areas that you want to focus on most of all and so these areas are where tree cover loss is happening at a statistically significantly higher level than ever before seen and so so if you were to try to prioritize different regions, this is one way that you could use historical data to figure out what areas you want to focus on. Um, and then another really interesting example, I'm not directly involved in this project, so I'll describe it um, briefly, but of course if you want to know more about it, you can look it up on our blog, which has a very um, in-depth blog post about this particular method. Um, DRC, we are, or not me, of course, but um, our researchers are focusing on using machine learning and artificial intelligence to predict where um, tracts of land and tracts of tropical forest are being lost in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and so the drivers there are primarily shifting cultivation, um, slash and burn agriculture, logging, mining, infrastructure development, and more. And these kind of each give a separate pattern of loss. So if you look at a logging road, you can tell that it's very straight, narrow, and kind of snakes across a landscape, kind of like veins in your body. And so they're all long and attached to one another. And so looking at that pattern, you could almost think, if I see this pattern in the future, or if I see something developing like that, then maybe we can assume that the driver of that loss is logging. And you can do this for a variety of other drivers that I mentioned. Um, shifting cultivation and slash and burn agriculture leave a specific footprint. Mining leaves a very um, clear footprint, especially when there's mine tailings or those large bodies of toxic water that is used, um, well, is actually the after product of mining. Um, those show up satellite imagery, which is used to create um, our forest change data sets, and we use it every day to validate tree cover loss. Um, so this methodology is really promising and we're still working on perfecting this, but it's something that we are currently and actively working on and I think has a lot of promise for the future. That is super exciting to hear and I think that is definitely probably the way to go for the future too. Um, any other like cool projects either with an organization or other organizations you're, you're hearing that is doing something towards I guess like 
protecting the forest uh, in general. Yeah, um, so one project that I am involved in right now, my role is kind of shifting to focus more on this, is with the Map Builder project. So this is another application that that Global Forest Watch offers. And we use uh, basically Esri products, which is a GIS um, company that enables access to maps and data online. And we've built an application that basically enables users to create kind of a mini Global Forest Watch. And so they're able to access our tree cover loss data, um, the alert data, several contextual data sets and satellite imagery in a pre-made uh, website format. And it gives them the ability to upload then their own data sets. Um, and so they're able to combine their own information on agriculture or protected areas or other important regions that they're interested in studying to do analyses that we have put into this system. So in addition to being able to have an interactive map with specifically their own data and their own area of interest, um, they're able to gain access to the different analyses that we've created for our own website. So they're able to look at loss over time within in, say the protected areas that they're interested in or maybe um, primary forest loss um, within a certain region and kind of show what percentage is inside this protected region and outside this protected region and it creates analyses for them and visualizations so it really gives people data and access to analyses that may not be able to do this and it lets them share this information and this web map on their own website or with stakeholders that they're interested in sharing this information with. And so there's a lot of different examples, but um, our Forest Atlas project is working directly with governments and we've had a lot of success in Central Africa as well as surprisingly the Caucasus. So we've worked in Georgia, that project wrapped up last year, and we're now doing a project with Azerbaijan in Armenia, where we're helping them develop these very um, bespoke websites for their national government and allowing them to combine our data with their data. Because I think one of the biggest problems with forest monitoring um, technology is just the lack of data accessibility. Right. A lot of people who um, would really like to access this data don't necessarily have the technical skills to manipulate it. And so one of the things that we offer is data served in a really digestible manner. And I think um, this has been really, really helpful in making this data both accessible and easy to understand. And in areas that don't have internet access or access to um, near real-time alerts, uh, we enable users to download maps onto their phone um, or also print off maps that they've created and also analyses that they've created. So we try to make it both accessible and um, also make it like really, really easy and um, easy to use no matter uh, where you are in the world. What a great way to endorse like collaboration too. It's, um, I think it's the only way to be able to have this scalable and like in a sustainable way. So um, that's really exciting to hear. Um, one question, I guess, like sort of relating to our profession too and to understand like how we can be part of this like global network of, I guess, tree supporters. Um, so let's say, we, I mean, we're not necessarily in, uh, 
you know, we're not trying to like merge our data and, and like create our own map and like put it on our website, but we're particularly interested in maybe like forcing applications just because um, we like, for example, in, in our type of architecture, we like to um, utilize natural materials, right? And that also comes with a lot of trees. But, and for that, you know, we can sort of like, do design, talk about recommendations, uh, provide sort of like a, a network of um, or like map of existing uh, materiality that can be used either in prefabrication or uh, any type of construction. But obviously all of that would require some sort of like a partnership of an organization that practices this or does this. So how can we make sure we team up with the ones that do it most ethically, like does Global Forest Watch also provide sort of information or um, sort of like guidance in terms of like how to go about such collaborations or which organizations are doing this right or who are Global Forest Watch partners? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, so Global Forest Watch primarily provides data regarding um, legal areas to remove forests and um, companies who operate there are assumed to be operating within the law. However, this data is very difficult to collect um, as I think a lot of the companies who um, are involved with this are kind of um, tight-lipped about uh, their exact processes. Um, so I think Global Forest Watch right now is definitely trying to bolster our ability to understand which companies are sourcing wood and sourcing um, raw materials in a sustainable way. Um, but it's something that I think has a really big gap in terms of data availability. Yeah. Um, some way that we've been trying to make relationships with the corporate sector is by creating an application called Global Forest Watch Pro. And so this application is mostly directed towards the finance sector and the banking sector and the corporations who are looking at their supply chains and wondering the same question as you are, like, are we sourcing responsibly? And so within this, um, within this application, we have several different analyses that take into account the location of their areas of interest and also areas that are at risk, such as um, peatlands in Indonesia, which you are not allowed to deforest on if they meet certain conditions. Um, um, other things such as existing palm oil mills and fire risk um, and it takes us all into account to kind of help you understand if your wood is coming from a certain region is it sustainable or not so we have been trying to produce these different calculations that people can do to assess the environmental sustainability of their raw materials but I do think that there is a long way to go to better track supply chains yeah, I think that is sort of like one of the key things um, and also something that needs a lot of work on like the transparency that we need in overall like supply chains, right? And that is something I guess like it's all of our responsibility to be mindful of that and sort of do our best due diligence uh, and not sort of use an excuse. It's like, oh, we didn't know about it, but sort of still uh, until we have that data available, have some responsibility in our like I guess, pre-research. Um, so I guess like before we wrap up, any advice you would like to give to anyone who would want to go into, I guess, like watching our forests and protecting them 
or uh, any other uh, field that might incorporate mapping and uh, data visualization um, for the sake of the environment. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I think one of the most important things to remember about getting into the field of sustainability, conservation, and environmental research is that there are many different ways to get your foot in the door. And so you might be from a really diverse background that you think might not necessarily um, bring the right skills to the table, but um, this field is very, very diverse, and there are there are roles for um, many different types of people. So, for example, within um, my team alone, there's someone who was extremely involved in improv theater before he became our grants and finance director. Um, there are several different musicians besides myself. Um, I think one of my colleagues used to train horses for the circus, and so. Um, yeah. To remind people out there that um, anyone with any background is really welcome in this field and that the skills that you have, the soft skills that you have and the hard skills that you have um, can really help you make a change. Um, so for example, if you have studied communications, you can help us translate our data into um, pieces of writing that people can really identify with and understand. Um, if you study international affairs, for example, you can help us contextualize the loss that we're seeing with some information about activities within the local government or different types of agriculture that are occurring that we might not know about or migration patterns that um, we were unaware of. Um, and of course, if you come from a more hard science background, then you can assist with the research that's going on in terms of carbon accounting and understanding how much carbon is kept above ground and below ground, which is really important to understanding how much carbon is released when forests are lost. And so just to um, summarize that um, large statement, um, I think that the environmental field is very welcoming and very open to a diverse group of people and that you you should not feel intimidated if at first you don't think that you have the right skills to succeed. I love that and I also love it just because it's your own personal story too and you're a living example of it so it's, <laughs> it's uh, it was a really uh, great treat to talk to you Kai. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very exciting to be able to talk about the work that I'm doing and I do hope that it helps people um, become more curious about how forests are changing around the world. Welcome to the What's Wrong with Synopsis. Forests are crowded places, home to roughly 80% of the world's terrestrial biodiversity, with millions of species competing with and depending on each other for survival. This incredible biodiversity that exists in forests is only one of the key reasons for protecting them. According to the World Wildlife Fund, forests cover an approximate 31% of land area on Earth. However, currently our planet loses more than 18 million acres of forest annually, or the equivalent of 27 soccer fields per minute. Throughout history and until today, forests have been cleared to make space for agriculture, for animal grazing, to obtain wood for fuel, for construction, and for manufacturing. Since 1990, the planet has lost 178 million hectares of forest, an area roughly the size of Libya. Deforestation has many major impacts on our environment, including soil erosion, water cycle disruption, biodiversity loss, and greenhouse gas emissions. 
deforestation has been linked to both the spread of infection, infectious diseases and climate change. When we clear forests, we are knocking down one of our best allies in capturing greenhouse gases, not to mention the additional emissions caused by cutting the trees down. Because when trees are cut down, they release all the carbon they have been storing back into the atmosphere. This habitat destruction is forcing disease-carrying wild animals closer to humans, allowing new strains of infectious disease to thrive. According to the World Resources Institute, only about 15% of the world's forests remain intact after degradation from logging, fires, and agricultural expansion. Millions of plant and animal species are currently facing extinction because of habitat destruction. Economic growth and ecological conservation have often been thought to be opposite sides of a coin. However, it has become clear that we can and we must design the correct policies that allow us to achieve economic growth without destroying our planet in the process. To learn more about forests and how to take action, visit globalforestwatch.org. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Tune in next week for a new episode. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. For more information on our events and podcasts, visit us at whatswrongwith.xyz.